I have absolutely no idea what we're doing here, or what I'm doing here, or what this place is about, but I am determined to enjoy myself. Now you want to talk about reading? Let's talk about reading. Let me tell you of the days of high adventure. The book served as a passageway to the evil worlds beyond. Ready to go, Doc? Oh, yes, yes, my dear fellow. I'll just check the gyroscopes. Hello, welcome back to the Appendix and Book Club podcast. This is episode 51.5. And Ooh. with me is always that insinuating rogue, Jeff Wormtongue. <laughs> precious, my precious. Wait, that's not Wormtongue. No, my precious, that's Gollum. <laughs> and in case you did not recognize this voice, that is the Raven Crow King himself, Daniel Vipson. <laughs> hey, Dan, great to have you back. Great to be back. <laughs> so I guess maybe it's worth explaining this to our audience for a quick second. So oftentimes when we have a guest on the show, um, we would love to have them back. But really, it's it's important to us that we have a wide variety of voices talking about these stories. And we really wanted to have Daniel Bishop back. Daniel Bishop really wanted to come back. But also, The Lord of the Rings is kind of such an important piece of work in the history of Dungeons & Dragons. It doesn't really make sense to only have one person's uh, one person's take on it, but Dan does. But Daniel J. Bishop loves this series so much and knows a lot about it. We decided we could have our cake and eat it too by having a different special guest on each of the three books, but also having a bonus episode where the Raven Crow King comes on and talks about uh, the Lord of the Rings trilogy with us as well. So, surprise everyone! As you get both. talking music bonus. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Great to so be back. If you have, yes, thank you. And if you haven't heard the previous episode with Daniel J. Bishop, just to let you know a little bit about him, he is a very prolific DCC writer, has written many adventures and supplements. Um, also, I'm a huge fan of his uh, Raven Crow King um, supplements where he, uh, volumes one, two, and three of, oh, I'm, now I'm embarrassed. I'm forgetting the proper title of it. There are five. Dispatches from Raven Crow King. Yes, five just came out. Oh, I've only read one. I only have one, two, and three. Wait, what are four and five on? Shame. <laughs> I'm so embarrassed now. <laughs> Daniel J. Bishop, tell us about uh, issue, about uh, Dispatches four and five. Oh, now you're putting me on the spot. Five just came out um, this year, so that one has a bunch of stuff on running campaigns. Nice. Uh, four, I'd have to go back and remember. That might be the Mega Dungeon one. Oh, yeah, it has to be, because I don't have a Mega Dungeons one. The The third one I have is on uh, heck, on, on um, um, sandboxes. Yeah, okay, so four is the Mega Dungeon one, and then five is on running campaigns. It has a bunch of stuff on NPCs. And like that. Gotcha. I often recommend volume three. I think your sandbox um, wisdom is uh, very useful. Well, thank you, sir. And I, I particularly liked your recent articles uh, last year about... Um, Statting monsters and, and and creating NPCs. That series, I think, was pretty, and the saving throw series was, I think, was I pretty important. Those are both in, in number five. Ah, terrific! So there you go. Go out and look for dispatches from the Raven Crow King, Volume Five, from Purple Duck. And uh, Hoy is talking to you, Jeff. <laughs> yes, <laughs> I will go out and do that now because I have one, two, and three. I have them both in PDF and in and in physical copies, but I need to go get four and five. So moving in to the show and away from my own shame and humiliation, uh, let's go ahead and discuss which edition of the book 
we are working with. Um, so Hoy and I already discussed this on the last one. So people have been through this before, but quickly I will just say that I'm reading the original Ballantine paperback, the first authorized edition uh, with the J.R.R. Tolkien watercolor. Um, Hoy, what are you reading? I'm reading the Kindle uh, version, although I also have my Houghton Mifflin trade paperback with the Alan Lee cover. And as always, my Chinatown find the Houghton Mifflin Ballantine, oh, the nice. Pauline Baines cover from the dumpster. And he loves that. Yeah. So those uh, are the first ones I read. Right. And I was really weirded out by these covers when I was a kid because they were a little too weird. And then the, I like the Tolkien ones. But now I really appreciate these Pauline Baines covers. So, and Daniel, what did you and read? I am reading Harper Collins with uh, basically the worst cover of all time. Just sort yeah, of the, sort just of the eye. Red right? ring. <laughs> okay. Yeah, it kind of looks like somebody just like had a big glass of Kool-Aid that they sat on the black book and it just <laughs> kind of stayed in the cover. <laughs> well, it's, a, it's a box set and mine wear out. Right, you're okay. reading like once all a year. my older editions. And these ones, like if you look, you can see obviously the people at home, but you can see how this is already starting to wear along the cover. Mm -hmm. Well, it's too bad. It's such a hard book to find, you know, the Two Towers and Tolkien's works. I think it's a. Yeah, nobody, nobody cares. <laughs> <laughs> yep. So we will quickly look at our Hygaxian word of the day. And I also picked a different word for this episode. So our word of episode 51 and a half is. Bivouac. Oh, I need to turn that up. Did you guys hear that? Barely. I did not. Bivouac. Bivouac. Uh, so on page 166 of my edition, it says, In a great circle, under the starry sky and the waxing moon, they now made their bivouac. And a bivouac is a temporary camp without tents or cover, used especially by soldiers or mountaineers. So bivouac. There you go. Daniel, do you have a word? Um, I don't know what you used in your previous episode because it hasn't come out yet. So, have you done Flotsam and Jetsam? We have not. No, we did Dingle in the last episode. Oh, that's a good one. That's a good one. So, I came up with actually four possibilities. Flotsam and Jetsam are two. Um, and that is marine debris. Mm. Flotsam is stuff that just happens to be floating by mistake. The Jetsam is stuff you've tossed overboard. Oh. Uh, there's a chapter in uh, Two Towers called Flotsam and Jetsam. Mm -hmm. In marine law, apparently, if you jettison the stuff, if it's jetsam, then the original owner still has a right to it. Uh -huh. Oh, is that right? okay. Yeah, in distress. Ship in distress to lighten the load. Um, uh -huh. Or file, uh, P-H-I-A-L, like the yes. file of Gladrill, mm -hmm. which is a vial or a glass vessel or bottle. Mm -hmm. Usually yep, for on my short list. Yep. And postern. Oh, yep, yep. Which is a small side gate, um, which comes up in the Battle of Helmstead. Right, right. That's when uh, Aragorn sorties out to uh, uh, get the yes. people on the ramp. Right. There you go. And right. they're very happy Kimlin was there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so moving and not on for the in... movie reason. Not exactly. <laughs> So moving on into the library. Uh, so Daniel J. Bishop, tell us, what do you think of J.R.R. Tolkien's The Two Towers? Uh, this is, as far as a single book, the best of the books, in my opinion. 
Okay. Ooh. I mean, there's a lot of good stuff in the other two, but this is the high point of the series as it moves. Uh, a lot of the stuff as they go into Mordor becomes darker and harder to read. A lot of the stuff dealing with, uh, with the siege of Gondor is likewise, it, it's tough. It's not, um, it's not as friendly to read. But this one is moving between fellowship and into that. The language is uh, maybe more accessible. And the bits with Smeagol in particular in um, the second part are fantastic. Mm -hmm. I think that's um, other than uh, in terms of pop culture, other than Empire, I think that's the uh, first time I've heard anyone specify the middle part of the trilogy as the high point. Um, and oh, but it is. It okay? Yeah, I think it's a, uh, and I think there's perfectly good reasons. Do uh, now, Jeff and I talked about. There's three major sections in this book. There are what happens with Merry and Pippin. There is um, Legolas and Aragorn and Gimli, and then later on Helm's Deep, and then the parts with uh, Frodo and Sam and Smeagol. Are there any particular high points as far as those three sections that is your favorite of the book? Okay, so let's look at each of them. When yeah. you're looking at uh, Pippin and Mary. Pippin keeps his head. Like, more than anything, because he throws away the brooch, because he uh, is able to make use of Ugluk's desire. It's Ugluk, right? Yeah, so I, I go think back so. and look at yeah. the orc name. Yeah. His desire to get the ring, and he, he figures out that he knows that it's the ring, they manage to get away. Mm -hmm. And that is really, you know, he's still the lucky halfling. Right, right. And Pippin is often sort of considered the, the foolish one. And here, I guess, actually using his brains, right, and, and developing em empathy, among other things. That's a theme I want to get back to, uh, empathy as the hobbits de develop it. We'll, we'll get back to uh, when, once you're finished with your points. Uh, if I was looking at the Legolas and uh, Aragorn and Gimli, probably my favorite scene of that entire bit is when the riders of Rohirrim almost miss them. And they step out on the grass. Like, that exchange right. is actually really good. Uh, Frodo and Sam, highlight has got to be either one of three things, because it's, I guess, it's a longer part than uh, the passage of the Dead Marshes. Mm. And the implication that Gollum has tried to reach the faces before. Mm. Uh, because we know from the first book that he's stealing babies out of the crib, he'll eat anything. Right. Uh, the part where Smeagol and Gollum have their conversation and Sam overhears it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Or, and they did a good job of that actually in the film as well. Right. Or right. finally, that entirety of not just Shelob apparently killing Frodo, but Sam realizing what a dumbass he'd been. Can I say that on the... Yeah, I guess yeah absolutely. Dumb as he'd been. <laughs> and uh, that he left Frodo alive to be captured by orcs. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I also think one of the really effective parts of that final section with Frodo, Sam, and, and um, Gollum is that the foreshadowing of Shelob has, was b building for more than 100 pages. And Gollum is saying she will take care of them. But also what's great 
is that Frodo and Sam also kind of know something's up. They keep saying, they keep bringing up the fact that Gollum isn't saying for sure whether or not that tunnel is guarded. And so it's this thing where it's like they know they're walking into a trap. Uh, they're not they're not dumb characters. They know that Gollum is a really um, um, I don't want to say distrustful. Unreliable. That's that's a good word because part of Gollum does really care for them and want to help them, but another part of him just wants the ring and doesn't care what happens to them, and also would like to see them suffer. Um, so I think they handled their and hate to solve packets. Exactly. So I think they handled that really well. Um, I, I I liked that we got to watch Sam and Frodo know that something was off but still make the choice to keep Gollum as their guide knowing that they they, they need him right and, and not only need him that they I mean Frodo has always been an incredibly empathetic character but but Sam has to learn empathy and I think this was I, I, I touched on it in the last episode Sam is you know in many ways is sort of the secret hero of the trilogy he actually is like that's you know a ring bearer for a very brief period of time um but as Anna alluded to, there's a very uh, Sam is of a different social class than the other three hobbits, and he's definitely much more of a sort of working class yeoman hobbit rather than you know of the gentry. And so it's natural that he has empathy towards his master and to his local community, but he needs to learn empathy to Smeagol, and he almost learns it too late, or maybe in fact he does learn it too late because there Smeagol has a brief moment of almost tenderness when he's approaching uh, Frodo when he's asleep, and then Sam wakes up and star- startles. And, and then Smeagol just reverts, right, because of Sam's suspicion. Um, so Sam almost has to learn empathy. And he has a moment. He realizes, Sam realizes he's gone too far, right, but it's too late. Um, and as you should mentioned, Pippin develops empathy. Um, and also to build on a point that you mentioned last time, Dan, so that if the, the Hobbit's leaving the Shire and basically they level up as they get to, uh, I guess, Bree, Asbury, right, and Pippin is at first is the mascot. He is the if the DCC one who is the mascot of the party. But he also levels up. He becomes a better adventurer, right? He becomes smarter by leaving the brooch and, and playing off the the orcs against each other. Mary also clearly levels up. Uh, certainly, if not just in this book, by the beginning of Return of the King. Um, and so that the hobbits are actually better stand-ins for sort of for player characters, whereas for example, Aragorn and Gandalf and Legolas and Gimli don't really change in the trilogy. They're almost iconic characters, whereas the Hobbits are uh, dramatic characters. Uh, the relationship between Legolas and Gimli changes quite a bit over the course of this book because they start out as your what has become typical elf and dwarf only because of Tolkien, where they kind of dislike each other right. because of their race right. into people who respect each other. Uh Legolas goes to see the glittering caves of Aglarond in Helm's Deep, and Gimli promises to return to the uh, to Fangorn with with Legolas after the War of the Ring. Right, right. Mm-hmm. Which, if you read the appendices in the third book, he does. I would almost love to see a um, a post Lord of the Rings buddy buddy action movie with Legolas and Gimli. Maybe. <laughs> Maybe. Don't say that too loud, though. Well, you guys have it, and it'll be terrible. <laughs> You guys haven't read the third book yet, have you? Uh, I have, but not recently. About five years ago was the last time I read it. So. I last read it in the 90s. Yeah. So. Okay, in Return of the King, there are appendices that no one ever reads. Yeah. But if you do go back and read them, you will find that Legolas and Gimli 
both go off into the West together as the last members of the fellowship to leave Middle Earth. Mm -hmm. It is my intention to read the appendices. That makes Gimli the only dwarf in history. To go to the West. To go West. Right. Oh. Right. And then they also laid the implications for a sort of almost HP uh, Lovecraft sequel in the Fourth Age with uh, with Aragorn's son, yeah, fighting a sort of resurrected dark cult. Yeah. So. That's so one thing I Tolkien almost wrote. Yeah. Right. One thing I was surprised to encounter was Seriously. that they. Yeah, that would have been amazing. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Go ahead, Jeff. No, it's fine. Yeah. But they they basically mentioned the year here because they talk about how fourteen seventeen was a good year for was it the pipe weed I think or something something was a good year two years ago, uh, so now it's fourteen nineteen and fourteen nineteen in our own history seems like it's kind of a comparable technological level to where they're at in the Lord of the Rings, so I, I wonder five hundred. 600 years from now in Middle Earth, do they all have smartphones? <laughs> uh, no, because <laughs> Middle Earth is our Earth. And in the Third Age, we're in the Fourth Age. So this is before, well before our uh, time. Right, right. Now, if we were saying out of all the Earths that are Earths, uh, does then the uh, Conan, uh, is the Conan series in the Fourth Age? I guess it must be. Yes. <laughs> right. So we could actually have... Yeah, the middle. elves and the dwarves are gone. Right. But some of the creatures are still around that... Uh, right. The very spawn of Ungoliant, the spider, are still on the, still uh, flapping around in the darkness. So there you go. We have and our... Melnibide is also in our prehistory. Right, exactly. So we have our Conan, Melnibone, uh, Lord of the Rings crossover all set. There you go. So uh, bringing up Mel, um, uh, Mel Nemede, one of the things that I brought up in the last episode was Michael Moorcock's uh, criticisms of the Lord of the Rings trilogy. And one of the things that he referred to, he refers to as J.R.R. Tolkien, he refers to him as a crypto-fascist and um, talks about how really the Lord of the Rings trilogy at its core is about maintaining the status quo and kind of keeping that kind of middle-class uh, ideology um, safe and protected from the evil outside forces of the East and the South. Uh, how do you feel about that take on the Lord of the Rings trilogy? Just unmitigated bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if you go back and read his letters as well, right? As well as read the books. Uh, the sin of the elves is the same sin as uh, Sauron, in that they want to order Middle-earth the way that they want it. And specifically, in the case of the elves, they're holding time back. They're trying to prevent things from changing. Things aren't going to change. It's part of the plan that things change. Trying to prevent things from changing is specifically called out as something that you should not do in the Lord of the Rings. You know, Sauron is trying to hold it back to the Age of Morgoth, effectively, right? So the first age. Uh, the elves are trying to hold part of Middle-earth in the Second Age. Um, the hobbits, in a way, are trying to maintain what they have in the Third Age, but the Fourth Age is coming by the end of the book. And everything that they do heralds in that age, right, right. where the and first three ages are torn away, basically. So, no. Well, the whole point... Right. Sorry, and, go ahead. And, and Gondor is clearly... Sorry, Gondor's clear fault is that it's so backwards looking compared yes. to the other human 
like the, Ro- the Rohan or any of the other human cultures, right? That when, I mean, it's more in the third book, but when they enter Gondor, it is hollowed out shell of what it should be. Yes. Right. And, and I think, I mean, Faramir alludes to that in that whole part in when they're in Ithilien, which is really, uh, you know, a day's march from God, from Minas Tirith, right? And this is the the original heartland of Gondor because Minas Tirith was just a minor, well, not a minor, but it was a, a fortress. It wasn't the real, the true heartland of Gondor, right? The true heartland has been abandoned. And that's where Faramir first encounters, uh, you know, Frodo and, and Sam. So uh, they have Athelian they have sort of abandoned by being so backwards looking. Osculiath is our Ithilien, where Faramir right. encounters them, is an area that they had annexed after they overthrew Sauron the first time. And they built um, mm-hmm. a tower there that becomes Minas Morgul in order to keep watch on on uh, Mordor to make sure that Sauron can't return. But of course, they don't. Right. They become inwards looking. There's allusions to uh, Gondor uh, having a plague and then becoming depopulated. And so therefore they cannot hold on to all their gains that they've made. Um, now here's the thing, since you bring it up, it's never explicitly said which are the two towers in the book of, of, of the title. So which, what do you think the titles are? Uh, towers are? I mean, I'm pretty sure that Isengard is one of them, but what is the other tower? Uh, Beridur. Beridur. And- some people have made the case that it's... it's uh, Minas Morgul, because that's where the book ends. Yeah, I know. I would, too, if it wasn't for the fact that Tolkien, in his letters, said it was Beridur. Aha, there you go. And also, I mean, those are two iconic towers, and in Mordor, they're constantly describing them as a bunch of towers in Mm -hmm. Mordor, and just one of them has the eye above it. Mm -hmm. Um, So I I also would would not think that one of the two towers was in Mordor. Uh, Beridur is in Mordor. Oh, I'm but sorry. If you look at yeah. the, uh, I'm confused then. At the two well, books at the, I was saying Minas Morgul, which is at the end. Right. Yeah. Oh, if you look at yeah. the two books yeah. that make up this book, the first one deals with the treason of Isengard, which deals with Is- with um, Isengard and Beridur. The second one, you have a big part played by Mar- Minas Morgul as they go by it, and Beridur. So you could almost claim that each mm-hmm. part has two towers. And, and there's the presence always of people knowing that they need to go to Minas Tirith, although you haven't arrived there yet in this book. So that's yes. another tower in there. So I think it's clear that J.R. Tolkien has an incredible gift for world building. Um, as a linguist, he has an incredible gift for, for, for the creation of language. Um, when it comes to the creation of character, I feel like it can be a real mixed bag of very, very successful character development. I think the characters of Sam, Frodo, and Gollum are all really beautifully crafted. And I really feel the very complicated relationships they all have with one another. But then I look at a character like Aragorn, and I feel like every time he speaks, it's awkwardly formal. He delivers these strange soliloquies to himself when nobody is around. Um, I don't know. I, I don't feel like Tolkien is very. Um, um, I'm, I, I keep forgetting basic words here. Uh, consistent. I don't feel like he's very consistent in his ability to craft characters. I think he is. I think that the hobbits are more accessible to us. We get to see into their mind more. It's it's a deliberate choice on the part of Tolkien. Uh, 
However, I do think Aragorn is consistent. And in fact, I think that Aragorn is Tolkien's answer to Conan. Uh, both of those characters mm-hmm. share a lot of things in common. Uh, and Aragorn is actually a relatively complex character that the films did no justice to at all. And he's a guy who is quite old at the time that we first meet him. He has spent many a night in a ditch. Right. He has traveled throughout uh, Middle-earth. He is the foremost hunter and possibly the foremost warrior of his time. And um, all this he wants is to get married to Arwen Evenstar. Everything else that he does is based upon two things. He can't marry Arwen until he sits on the throne of Gondor. And that's all he really wants. But if he challenges the throne of Gondor and sits on it too soon, they lose the War of the Ring. And he's well aware of that as a young man, that uh, Thorin is out looking for him and that there is a time in which he can do it. So he is a character who sacrifices himself through most of his life, only to get what he wants near the end. And if you realize that, then a lot of the things that he says near the end are really him realizing that what he is there for, what he's wanted for 80 years, or not, not his entire life, so let's say 60 years, finally is coming to fruition. And it makes the hobbits re-see him. We only ever see Aragorn as the hobbits see Aragorn. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that can, that's a fair appraisal. I, I, one, one kind of counter to that I would give, though, is that there are moments in the book where we do, where we are with Aragorn and or Aragorn alone. And a character like Gandalf, that never happens. Gandalf is very much kind of outside of the scope of who we are able to really kind of get in the mind of and sit within the narration. Uh, Gandalf really is kind of this this kind of other in the story. And when he he goes off, it's a mystery exactly what he does until it comes back later. But like when, when, when Boromir dies in the beginning of the book, we are with Aragorn on his own as he's like kind of delivering the soliloquy um, and and kind of waxing poetic yes. about the loss of Boromir, um, and I and I'm not saying that Aragorn is a, is is not a consistent character. I'm saying I don't feel like Tolkien is as consistent in his ability to make the characters kind of relatable. And I understand what you're saying. You're saying that the hobbits are designed to be relatable to us, and Aragorn's maybe not. Um, but I don't know. It, it makes it it his inaccessibility makes him seem less real to me. Well, I think Aragorn is designed to be, to hearken back to the sagas or the epics. He is, um, and I said before, an iconic character. I mean, he's capable of change he's in his lifetime, as are Legolas and, Gimlis, uh, Legolas and Gimli. But they are sort of whole in them themselves uh, prior to us ever encountering them. Mm-hmm. Because they've all lived such long lives, right? I mean, Aragorn's already 80-something when we first meet him. Legolas is hundreds of years old. And even Gimli is well over 100 years old when we mm-hmm. first encounter him. Um, so, um, and Aragorn's role as an iconic character, I like to say that's like, um, say, like the man with no name in the Clint Eastwood trilogy, right? He is, by being true to himself, he, he cre- recreates order in a world gone mad. Whereas the hobbits have to grow into their roles as people who realize that they, that they have something worth protecting, and, right? And so, but Legolas and Gimli and Aragorn already know what they're standing for, right? Mm-hmm. And so that it's not necessary for us to see them develop, 
those three characters as characters, but it is necessary for uh, us to understand what the stakes that they're fighting for are. Yeah. So that would that's what I would say would be the difference. I think you also need to keep in mind that Aragorn is a character who has been hidden for all of his life. He is never a strider. He's another when he's with the riders of the Rohirrim. He says he's ridden through their lands under another name. He's been a soldier of Gondor. He has never been able to reveal himself as himself until now. That's true. And right. And 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 then to then be when he first reveals himself, people still don't believe him. He's too rough hewn. He's too sort of rustic looking. He's even sinister to the hobbits at the very beginning yes. when they encounter him in Bree, right? He doesn't have the sort of obvious uh, sort of uh, regalness uh, that slowly comes into what people, his, his presence reveals itself, but it's not through his physical beauty, right? In the way that is more obvious with say Boromir or Faramir uh, for, or, or even Aomer for that, for that matter, right? So that's, uh, he's an unlikely king in some ways. And one way I think that this could be kind of an interesting segue into the gaming conversation is, you know, as as Aragorn travels the lands, he's known as Strider in some places, and he's got different nicknames in different areas. And that's a similar trope with uh, Kikaha in the World of Tears series. And one of the things I was thinking about while I was reading it is how fun it would be as a game master to have the exploits of the adventurers grant them different nicknames in different regions that they can kind of earn that then come back and play later. I've, I've not really encountered anybody doing that, and I think that could be a fun uh, bone to throw your, 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 your players. Mm-hmm. I agree. I think there's some other games, not D&D specifically, that have sort of re- renown or fame uh, mm. systems built in. I think, there's, I think there's something like that in Pendragon. Um, certainly you can buy... Uh, Hackmaster. Uh, well, Hackmaster has a rule for everything, right? Certainly, in in GURPS, you can buy reputation, um, but I think a system of renown uh, would be interesting to, as you say, to implement in any game. I think if you're trying to create a, an idea of sort of epic, as opposed mm-hmm. to just being murder hobo. Um, so, and and you could have conflicting reputations, right? Obviously, if you are renowned here, but then you go into the orc lands, or so there's that orc murderer, <laughs> right? Sure. Um, um, yeah. And speaking of different, uh, different gaming systems, I'm curious, um, Dan, have you played any of the officially licensed Middle Earth role playing games? You know, I have not. You have not. Neither have I. Have you, Hoy? No, I haven't. I remember picking up the uh, some of the Merp uh, supplements back in the day just to look at them because they had some amazing artwork. Like Liz, Liz Danforth did some pen and ink drawings, and um, there was this Angus. Uh, no, uh, the guy who used to do a lot of Osprey books did a lot of covers. Um, but it was actually interesting because they were playing out away from all the stuff that was happening in the saga, right? So, and that's, that's the tendency with any Middle Earth game, right? You kind of don't want to touch the core of the Lord of the Rings or of the trilogy or the Hobbit. So you have to play up in, you know, in Arnor or play up in, you know, past the Misty Mountains or down south in Numbar or something like that. Um, mm-hmm. And so that's the danger of, I guess, any kind of licensed property that has you know so much uh weight attached to it um but i remember it was interesting well, because the they were in there the events have a weight right and so they were like oh you know here's um you know um i forget the name of the uh wood elf king who was legolas's father but he's like an 80th level elf i'm like uh, what do you even do with that yeah <laughs> yeah what do you even do with that right <laughs> this is you know um 
you know, I've heard that the, the current version, the One Ring RPG from Cubicle 7 is quite good, and that they really tailor towards a Middle-Earth game as opposed to reskinning, you know, Dungeons & Dragons or some other system to make it work. Um, but I think that's always an ongoing challenge, identifying, because it's so rich, identifying which of the various themes in Tolkien's work that you want to privilege in gameplay. Yeah. Uh, but anyway. Sorry, can I just go back for one second, too? Sure. Uh, Absolutely. Your first one. Did you talk about how um, there's there's a scene in which Sam sees one of the soldiers of Herod get killed, and he has a moment in which he is um, wondering whether or not that person is actually evil or would rather be at home. Right. And right. When I they're fighting that with that uh, very right? much. Yes. That that relates very much to. Uh, World War One and World War Two, mm-hmm. like the experiences yeah. with the Germans, and then even later on, when they're just before the end, where they're talking to the orcs, the orcs are saying they're saying they wish they weren't there, right? That they would rather be somewhere far away from this. But there's a war, right. so we don't have any real choice, right? So, and compared to what Morcock was looking at earlier in some of his things, there is a real humanity given even to the characters that are quote-unquote evil in this book Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. right because there's been talk a lot recently about how sauron's various uh you know minions are coded as you know eastern or southern just not european not in european other right but and swarthy and slant-eyed are used almost every time to describe them but um as you say daniel the 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 uh, the Orcs are given sort of humanity. They're very rough hewn, but they almost they come across as sort of working class British people when they talk to each other, right? Like very Cockney when they're talking to each other. Yeah. Uh, both both when the uh, Urukai are arguing with the Mordor orcs when they have uh, Merry and Pippin, and then later on the two uh, Orcish captains in Minas Morgul. So they are characterized. Um, Sam also, I think, wonders whether the various people from Harad or um, Umbar, yes. uh, whichever the human city sees, are they, have they been tricked? Have they been, uh, have they had their arms twisted? Are they following Sauron willingly? Um, what does it, you know, what does it mean that they are here on this far, so and, far and away from home? Yeah. That's meaningful because in the first part of the book, when the hillmen are attacking Helm's Deep with your, with the, let's face it, half arcs of uh, Sauron. Yeah. In the, in the film version of it, Saruman is just birthing those half orcs out of the uh, out of the cavern wall or something like that. Mm-hmm. But in the book, if you go back and you read it, the hillmen believe that the Rohirrim have been raiding them for their women. What orc, what uh, Saruman is actually doing is he's having his orcs raid into this this area, and he is stealing breeding stock that he is breeding with orcs underneath Orthanc. It's a lot darker than uh, you would think. But again, it's a case where one of the quote-unquote villain people turns out to just be tricked. Right. They're, they're very much... Uh, oh, yeah. Go back they're... into gaming. <laughs> well, I mean, that, that goes to the origins of the half-orc class in AD&D, right? People are always like, well, yes. what does it imply about the world? Is, is this very distasteful? Are all half-orcs, you know, creatures of rape, uh, you know, products of rape? Or are they are in the Lord yeah. of the Rings. Right. And then, um, and, and so, yeah, and then it's a big argument. Well, then what are we coding? You know, is this, um, is this uh, uh, talking about 
you know, an idea of a warrior race, you know, that, you know, and then that's, that's in some way deeply offensive. You know, we used to be in the colonial period, we would code, you know, the British empire would code for people, um, you know, the Zulus as a warrior race, as if that's all they were capable of doing, right? They were just naturally bred to be, you know, warriors. Um, so what are the Urukai, whatever, but then we see this is a, a deliberate sort of eugenics movement on the part of Saruman, right? Saruman represents modernity in many of its most negative forms, I think that would be fair to say, right? Including Uh, eugenics, as you said. Right. Eugenics, uh, the triumph of technology and sort of demagoguery and persuade, you know, mass media persuasion, for lack of a better word, um, over sort of uh, valuing personal relationships. I think that's that's something that Saruman represents and, and will come home to roost later on. So, um, anything else to add on that, Jeff? Um, I, it's a big topic, you know. That sure, sure. I mean, I don't, I don't have anything immediate to add directly to what you just said. Yeah. Um, but I mean, there's certainly a, a lot of stuff that we can talk about here. I mean, it's 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 very rich, especially when we're talking about the ways in which the this book and the Lord of the Rings in general influenced Dungeons and Dragons. I mean, obviously. Um, you know, the, the way that elves and dwarves and rangers are written are clearly from this. Um, but I think a what? lot of it can go. <laughs> <laughs> Shocker, Daniel. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and actually, you mentioned this last time because you had mentioned, for example, that the halfling, because, you know, that Pippin really was clearly that the, the DCC halfling was one of the most successful attempts to create a halfling class and that Pippin really embodied uh, a lot of the aspects of the DCC halfling. Um, yeah, because the, the Dungeons and Dragons halfling, I don't, it doesn't resemble a hobbit to me at all, other than being uh, short. In AD&D, though, they did actually, if you go back to the Monster Manual, divide them into three categories, yeah. which actually do occur in the book if you go through it. Right, the, the family, sort of like the Tooks and the, and, right, they represent, oh, they were, well, that's, that's, Return of the King. Right. They resemble the appendices for hobbits. Yeah. Yeah. But there's like the, was the, the tall fellow, the stout something. Yeah. Uh, and they do get good saving throws, which represents sort of the robustness of the halflings. And actually, I realize now in retrospect that it really made sense that D&D coded the halflings as fighters and not thieves. Because if you read the whole, like all three of the halflings, uh, all three of the hobbits in Lord of the Rings, not a single one of them is a thief, right? And Bilbo was only a thief by sort of uh, what they Luke. call them. He never picks a pocket. He never, you know. Totally. Gandalf called him a bird. He does one, actually. He picks a pocket on a troll. Ah, that's true. That's true. But he's, he's, not, uh, he's not in the grand scheme of things. He's sort of an accidental thief. Whereas uh, Mary is clearly a warrior. Pippin is clearly a warrior. Sam, of course, you know, he fights off Sheila, right? He's, yeah. You know, clearly a fighter. Um, that was very impressive. You know. And to the extent that, you know, Frodo is charging after the, um, I think he, he pulls out his sword at one point, he's charging after the orcs. Right, he charges after Shelob, goes out into the orc, charges out, and then Shelob um, ambushes him. So he's clearly embodying a fighter or warrior type, rather than, you know, the, the stereotypical D&D halfling as thief. So mm-hmm. that's, um, I think that's more appropriate. And that's basically what uh, DCC does, right? They give them stealth abilities, but they are have some of the best... Uh, I don't... Um, attack bonuses aside from the dwarf and the warrior they have better attack bonuses than the elves in uh see um so that's it would you um 
pursue if you were going to want to do more Lord of the Rings? Would you do that with DCC or would you go back to one of the other systems, Daniel? Or Jeff, for that matter? Well, me, I would do DCC, but after the last episode, I thought a lot more about how I would alter the game to make it better for Lord of the Rings. And one of the first things I would do, and Jeff will love this, I'm sure, is give the Get rid of clerics. Oh, <laughs> well, actually, I would give the elf a lot of the cleric stuff. Okay, they're good at healing. They're mm-hmm. they turn the Nazgul, like by right. their presence in the uh, secondary or first world, or however you want to look at it. In in their spirit world, they loom and have clearly a lot more. And they're also with the uh, Eldar. They're they're more like clerics than uh, anyone else in that world. Far more than like right. the. Mm-hmm. Uh, than the uh, than Elric is Elric is another one of the DCC takes that becomes an elf, but I would give them the cleric abilities and maybe maybe give some of those abilities to Gandalf as well. There are other wizards in the world than the Astari because or sorcerers I guess they call them because they don't initially know that the necromancer is uh, is Sauron Sauron yeah. And the Witch King of Angmar was clearly a sorcerer. The Moth of Sauron later on was clearly a sorcerer. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you broke up a little bit when you were talking about the Astari, but but I feel like maybe um, uh, Gandalf, in many ways, is more also like a cleric in terms of the abilities he presents. It's more like protection from evil. It's more like... Um, I mean, he does have some words that spells like whole portal, right? But, he, um, but, but the way he sort of... Um, in many ways, he's more of a buff character. Uh, in terms of he he he, you know, dispels fear, you know, when the Nazgul come by and stuff like that. So in that he feel, and we know that he's a member of the sort of higher order, the Maiar, um, so that he's more of a spiritual being than quote unquote a pure wizard of learning. Although he goes to to Gondor to study the archives, so he's not he's sort of a hybrid. He's not if you say that a wizard is purely scholarly and a cleric is purely spiritual, uh, Gandalf is somewhere in between. Yeah, and I mentioned this in in the last episode, which is that. Um, it, in the world of the Lord of the Rings, it doesn't seem like magic is something that if Faramir wanted to sit down and study, he could learn. It seems like magic is very much the birthright of wizards and elves. So with that in mind, if you agree with that statement, would you allow a wizard class in a Lord of the Rings style game, or would that be strictly NPCs? Um, I would allow it because, like I said, there clearly are lesser beings that seem to be wizards. The reason that Gandalf can look like a human being as he walks around is because there are other beings in that world, although we never meet them directly except for, like, the Maldusoran, the Witch King of Angmar while he was alive, uh, the people who made the barrel blades in, uh, that they find in the Fellowship clearly had some way to enchant them. Right, right. And, and later on, in, right later on in the third book, we'll see that Denethor has some supernatural powers. Um, well, some are through the Palantir, but, but some are inherent to being a descendant of Numenor. I think in, in, you would might say, right? Um, so, but yes, what would they be? Maybe in the Third Age, they're so far and rare in, in that you don't see them. But clearly, in the Second Age. Or before, you know, the, the man of Numenor had great powers, right? Yeah, a party of wizards would not fit. Like, if you had right. a character who could cast spells, then 
if you're trying to get the Middle Earth feel, you might allow one such character in your game. And if you did that character spells, they would have a reason to not really be overly overt with them because they don't want to draw the attention of the Astarte. And also, whenever the player couldn't make the session, you can have your wizard draw, ride off on some mysterious mission and then come back without explaining. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> well, but Gandalf actually, usually in this book, does explain where he's been. Like, he goes into right, great right. detail That's about true. where he was when he uh, fought the Balrog and then died and then came back. You right, just need right. a friendly eagle to roll the body. <laughs> Exactly. I, but I did enjoy that, that he did specifically mention at one point that while he was fighting the Balrog, he was tr he was outside of time and space um, and he doesn't know how long he was gone. And I'm just kind of imagining this just like interdimensional kind of uh, super battle between these two great entities. And yeah, because in Lothlorien too, they're in the in the first book they're literally and it's brought out that sam loses his reckoning about time right right because of the phase of the mm -hmm. moon so there are these areas that are not really part of middle earth that are in middle earth so you could actually that actually would make sense and, and i think we talked about this last time to the extent that there is almost a sort of lovecraftian horror element uh to tolkien that people don't really reckon with um, and this certainly comes clearly in, you know, Shelob is, yes. you know, one of the last descendants of Ungoliant and is somehow has made it to Mordor well before Sauron even knew that she was there, right? She, <laughs> Shelob gets there and, and Sauron doesn't want to confront her. He just leaves her be because he finds her useful. Um, and maybe he's but that she is of an older order of things that, you know, predates sort of the, you know, his arrival in Middle Earth. Um, and there was talk about some other things like that that are sort of predate, you know, the the at least the return of the elves from the west, right? So that there is um, sort of, um, you know, elder things, if you will. Yeah, and in Fangorn Forest, there are areas of darkness that are still in the first age. Mm -hmm. They've never rolled away from the rule of Morgoth, and that's explicit. Mm -hmm. um, you love? So the spiders in Mirkwood, do you think that those are her descendants? And that's one thing that I've, yeah. I've without uh, without immediately answering that, one of the things that I did notice in this is in The Hobbit, we've got evil trees and evil spiders and different takes on evil on, on trees and different takes on spiders have come back in this time around. What are the evil trees in The Hobbit? There's that there's that tree in the forest that like keeps like the what is it? Old Man Willow. Oh, that's oh. In the fellowship. Oh, that's in the fellowship. Yeah. The old forest oh, okay. in yeah. the fellowship. Okay. Yeah. And that's actually, if you go back, you'll discover that the old forest in Fangorn used to be the same forest at one point they connected. Like, that's part of that primeval before the Second mm -hmm. Age started. Yeah. Stage four. It is interesting that the the, the trees kind of keep coming back and the spider things keep coming back. But yeah, I'm, I'm not sure if those are related to Shelob or not. I think they mentioned something. Like, I, mean, I, I wouldn't a close reading that she tried to travel across the face of Middle Earth, and she bred with the sort of more natural things, and so that the spiders in Mirkwood are her descendants, but maybe not like her immediate children. Maybe they're like several generations down, um, and so that they're more sort of obviously material. They don't sort of create the darkness and the fear that she's able to create, um, and that sort of uh, her her sort of hypnotizing stare 
Um, and, and there's a real intelligence, like a malignant intelligence that she possesses, which the spiders of Mirkwood are, are a little bit more like just creatures. Mm-hmm. Right. They That's speak. true. Yeah. They speak. They have intelligence yeah. and they're evil. And they came there after mm-hmm. the necromancer. Because that's also in the book that uh, the Thangal, the Wood Elves, actually hate the spiders, which mm-hmm. came there after the Necromancer. So they might well be there simply because they're drawn from mm-hmm. other areas to his evil. Um, gotta point out that there is a bit, not necessarily gaming bit, but uh, where Smeagol tries to get Frodo to give him back the ring, and Frodo says, if I, wearing it, were to command you, you would obey, even if it were to leap from a precipice or to cast yourself into the fire, and such do I command, so have a care, Smeagol. Which is exactly what happens. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep, yep. Very solid foreshadowing there. <laughs> yeah. Well, not only that, but it actually implies that Smeagol's uh, swearing on the precious, and the, there's a couple of other, when he does it, Frodo warns him that it will be true. Mm-hmm. That literally, because he swore on the ring that he would do this, and that was the, if you try and grab, take it again, then he does, and that's exactly mm-hmm. what happens. To yeah. Him. So it's, it's free will that he has to grab it, but then it's predestination what will happen. Once that once that ha- does happen, it's that he does grab the ring, and or that I mean, that's a, that's a quest- or that the evil yeah. of the ring itself is its own undoing because it's a cursed item. Yeah, right, right. right. I mean, there is a, a big question of um, throughout uh, uh, the works of Tolkien of the question of free will, right? Whether uh, it's destiny, do people rise to the destiny, or people always destined? Was was is Sildur always going to take the ring? Or, you know, or, you know, he had a choice, right, to toss it into Mount Doom, right? Or in any of these characters at, at, at various points, they have choices, right? Um, Aragorn chooses to look into the Palantir later on, right? Um, yeah. Well, Faramir is interesting in that way because Faramir is the guy who was supposed to go instead of Boromir. Right. Faramir has this repeated dream and his father won't give him leave to go. And then finally, Boromir says, I had the dream once and right. gets to go. Right. And when we meet Faramir, he is clearly the guy who was supposed to go along and help. So, uh, Faramir was clearly the most misunderstood character in the films, uh, is my take. Oh, God. Uh, they, they, they made a hash. I understand why they did. Yeah. I understand that they didn't have the same space to make it obvious how dangerous the ring was. Right. But, but they made a hash of so many characters in the films because of that. Right. Right. I think in particular Faramir because he's almost he's never he he's quite dangerous, but he's always corpy in, in, in the films he's almost like uh, you know, a post nine eleven uh, you know, adventure. It's like he's almost threatening to torture the hobbits. I'm like, this this is not <laughs> you know, this is not our Faramir, right? You know? No. And Aragorn is a reluctant hero. Uh, he's a guy who was sacrificed almost his entire life when he wanted to be the hero. Uh because it was the right. it was the wrong thing to do. On the other hand, the Helm's Deep bits with the Peter Jackson, where he shows the kids getting ready, the kids and the old men getting ready for right. that battle, was very effective. Um, the Ents are much more effective and linked to the land in the Two Towers, of the book. Like they don't have to get tricked into fighting Saruman; they're just 
waiting for some kind of a catalyst to make their anger come to a boil because it's already simmering. Right. It's been long going. They, they're perfectly aware of what sorrow mind is. They're not fools. They're not being tricked. It's just that the, the, the motion in which they can respond to stuff is not at the pace of which normal humans do. Yep. One of the things that I kind of really enjoyed at one point, that, which made me think about uh, the gaming side here, is the... Um, where did that go? Oh, on page 219 of my edition they're talking about ants and they're mentioning that an ant cannot be struck. Oh, an ant can be stuck as, um, as full of orc arrows as a pincushion and take no serious harm. They cannot be poisoned for one thing and their skin seems to be very thick and tougher than bark. My question for you guys as judges, game masters, when you're running a, an encounter with a monster and if, if it doesn't specifically say the monster has some kind of immunity, but in your just kind of common sense, it just doesn't make sense to you that an arrow would do a lot of damage to a tree monster. Uh, do you tend to kind of stick with what's written on the page, or do you generally um, extrapolate from common sense, customize it to make sense in the story? I extrapolate from common sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't think there's necessary to give all sorts create uh, crazy immunities. I mean, in that case, it would be easy to model an having a very high armor class and a lot of hit points, right? Mm -hmm. uh, but you could certainly say, oh, only takes one point from piercing damage, and that would be a case. I mean, clearly they are they hate and fear axes, right? So the question is, just does an axe do normal damage, or does an axe do, and it's just because the number of orcs that are hacking at a an ant, or is it an axe just actually does double damage, you know, to, to an ant? Um, so sure, yeah. You can easily think of how can you take down a tree? An arrow probably won't take down a tree, but an axe definitely will. Right. You know, and also sometimes the reverse of this is true. Like I find that when sometimes I see that like skeletons receive half damage from slashing and piercing weapons, and I'm like, you can still crush a skeleton with a big sword. I don't understand why that well, it's half, not, no. wouldn't do just as much damage. You can go ahead and it's a, a sword you're normally hitting vital organs and things like that, right? They're not going to bleed. They're not going to. Sure, but but you can go ahead and uh, slash that spine in half yes, with your you sword. Yes, you can kill a skeleton with a sword. It's just not as easy as it is with a really big <laughs> hammer. I'm sorry, language. I don't know. If I... <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, a skeleton. No, it doesn't bother me. Low uh, dice creature. If it was like, if like skeletons were like five hit dice creatures, and you could still only do half damage for them, that would be like okay. Well, you're kind of crocking you know, the fighter in that case, right? But since they're, like, usually one hit dice or one hit dice plus one, I think it doesn't become a huge factor in the game. It's just, it's to make skeletons genuinely dangerous to low-level characters without making them an undue challenge to higher-level characters, which, again, I think some of these are, are pure game design issues rather than flavor and narrative issues. Unless you want to go 3E, 4E, 5E stat blocks. Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, I would really avoid trying to itemize everything that might happen. And Agreed. when you're playing the Absolutely. game as a judge, just, you know, if the player has a good idea and it makes sense to you, up their damage a day. If right. it doesn't, yeah. lower their damage a day. Like, I don't know, you don't need uh, somebody holding your hand to tell you that. Right, right. And so, Some people do. Right. And it certainly with 
DCC, you have the uh, deed die, so you might just r- rule that the weapon itself does half damage, but the deed represents doing something cool like mirroring the blades, you know, crack the ribs apart, and then you can do the full deed die in that case or something like that. Um, depending on another the- thing. Speaking of the deed die, let's say you're attacking that skeleton and you want to try to sever its spine or whatever, right? Your deed die presumably could be used for a deed that allows you to have full damage against it because of the kind of attack you're making. Right. I'm going to use a flat of the blade to smash its skull. I'm going to... Those are things that you can easily swing with as a, as a judge. Right, right. Yeah. Love it. All right, guys. So we are running out of time, um, but thank you so much for being on the show again. Is there any kind of last thing you wanted to share with us before we um, wrap up? Any projects you're working on? Any thoughts about the, the two towers? Um, thank you so much for having me. Uh, we were discussing a little bit before the show about how we were going to do three episodes for the third book in the trilogy. So you can have even <laughs> more points of view, and I can still get in there. Um, I'm working on stuff for Dark Trails right now, which oh, I great. guess David Beatty would really like me to mention. Um, I'm working on stuff for Purple Duck that Mark Gedak, I'm sure, is wondering why it hasn't gotten in. I guess they're both actually wondering why it hasn't gotten there in desk. I'm going to Scotland. I'll be running a game uh, in Perth and Stormcrow Manor. Like I'm running games there. I'll be doing a DCC game this Tuesday. Right. Nice. And you're still, is that your uh, post-apocalyptic Toronto game? Oh, that's Toronto Crawl Classics. It's every second Wednesday at Sword and Board. That's also this Wednesday. So game on. All right. Have you you started Kawhi Leonard for DCC? you know what? If I was going to do that, I would pull out the Goodman Games guide with the Dinosaur Crawl Classics and actually make them raptors. <laughs> you know? I can see it. <laughs> That's great. Now, if somebody wanted to find your products or get a hold of you, what's the best way for them to do that? Um, they could, for products, everything that I have almost anyway is on DriveThru. Um, if they want to get hold of me, they can shoot me an email, ravencurlking at hotmail.com. I have a blog, ravencurlking at blogspot.com, or something like that. You can look it up. It'll Google it. Um, And then there's, like, the DCC troll of treasures that massively needs to be updated and things like that. All right. Well, thank you so much. And, Hoy, how can people find us? All right. If you uh, want to drop us a note, you can drop us a note at appendixn.gmail.com. We're also on Twitter at, at Appendix underscore N. We're on uh, MeWe and Facebook under Appendix N Book Club. Uh, if you like the show or just want to give us a feedback on your various podcasts as a choice, it does help people find us. So again, on uh, Google Play or, or iTunes. Uh, and Jeff, why don't you tell, us about, uh, tell them about our Patreon? Absolutely. If you would like to show some support for our show, then please go to patreon.com slash appendix and book club. And we would like to send a few shout outs to some of our patrons. So thank you to Noah Green, Stanley Reduski, Vasily Kalaman, Andrew Sternick. Uh, here's one whose name is either Machinic or Mechanic. I'm not exactly sure, but for now I'll say Machinic. And if it's Mechanic or something else, come uh, send me an email. Let me know. And Eric Johnson, thank you for being uh, patrons and supporters of the show. And our next two episodes will be on 52, will be Edgar Rice Burroughs' Tainar of Pellucidar. 
And episode 53 will be H.P. Lovecraft's The Case of Charles Dexter Ward. So thank you so much for listening to the show. Thank you, Daniel, for being on again. Thank you for having me. See you in the stack. Read on. The library is closed. <laughs>